0: Warning, binge mode contains adult content.
1: It does, but we got to keep it moving because it's going to be a long one, guys. So if you don't want to listen to adult content, then check another fine podcast out on the Ringer Podcast Network.
0: Exactly. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why season one of our impending spinoff Law and Orror will contain an entire subplot on the ethics of controlling children in a moment of need, please proceed with extreme caution. And now binge mode. "'He can read minds?' said Harry quickly, his worst fears
1: confirmed. "'You have no subtlety, Potter,'
0: said Snape, his dark eyes glittering.
1: "'You do not understand fine distinctions. It is one of the shortcomings that makes you such a lamentable potion maker.'"
0: Snape paused for a moment, apparently to savor the pleasure of insulting Harry. Before continuing.
1: Only muggles talk of mind reading. The mind is not a book to be opened at will and examined at leisure. Thoughts are not etched on the inside of skulls to be perused by any invader. The mind is a complex, many-layered thing, Potter. Or at least most minds are. (laughs)
0: Binge Mode Harry Potter. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com.
1: Oh, what a great website.
0: Joining me today, now that he's finished explaining to Corn Fudge that, listen, while he may disagree with Dumbledore on many counts, he cannot deny he's got style. It's Ringer staff writer and your headmaster, Jason Concepcion.
1: Yo, oh, Mallory, I wish Dumbledore could have stayed around a bit longer because it's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you're a longtime Quibbler reader or A new convert. I hear they have a hot feature on none other than Harry Potter in the latest issue. Had to reprint. That's right. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and go ahead and rate and review us. Five points, five stars for Binge Mode. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Binge underscore Mode, aka the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans and which is an excellent place to cancel your subscription to the Daily Profit. Fuck that paper.
0: Yesterday. On Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how a lost control shapes chapters 20 through 23 of Order of the Phoenix. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 24 through 28. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep, deep on details from all seven books, end date films, and the wider Potter mm. canon. <laughs> Taking the entire series into account from the moment Snape tells us to rid our minds of all emotion. So practice your shield charms and your stinging hexes, because it's time to break into Snape's memories.
1: Mal, mm-hmm. dim though you may be, oh. I would have thought that after three months worth of podcast, you might have made some progress with the plot points. So it's time to offer a brief refresher on what happened in these jam-packed chapters. Of Order of the Phoenix, so numbers damned. 24 through 28, by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine to plot the Hogwarts Express Choo Choo. So much plot. As Christmas break comes to a close at Grimaud Place, Harry is called into the kitchen to speak to Snape, who on Dumbledore's orders will be giving Harry lessons in occlumency. When Harry
0: arrives for his first session, Snape tells him that Voldemort is a powerful legilimens and that Harry's dreams are the result of the connection forged when the Dark Lord tried to murder him.
1: Nevertheless, Harry's dreams continue growing more detailed and more immersive. Harry realizes that the door he keeps seeing leads to the Department of Mysteries in the ministry.
0: But there's something else to focus on disaster at Azkaban. 10 Death Eaters have escaped from the prison.
1: Public sentiment is shifting, helped along by an interview Harry gives to Rita Skeeter for the Quibbler.
0: Your girl, <laughs>
1: well, she's back. Umbridge, desperate to regain some control, fires Trelawney, then busts up a DA meeting after Marietta rats them out. She catches Harry. Dumbledore
0: takes the blame and stages a masterful escape from corn fudge. And with
1: Dumbledore gone, Fred and George are unrestrained. The twins cause havoc in the school with enchanted fireworks. And then we get fireworks of a different sort. Occlumency, Snape gets called away by Draco, giving Harry the opportunity to peek, peek, peek into the Potion Master's memories using the pensive.
0: What Harry sees
1: shakes him to his
0: core. My dad's a dick! (laughs) Jason? Yeah. Fools who wear their hearts proudly on their Mm. sleeves, who cannot control their emotions, who wallow in sad memories and allow themselves to be provoked this easily. Weak podcasters, in other words. Yes! They stand no chance against his powers. I'm doomed, if that's the case. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. And boy, is it a big one today, because there Uh. are so many pages. (laughs) Let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 24 through 28, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, is the battle within.
1: Chapter 24, Occlumency. Mm-hmm. When Creature shows up in the attic, Harry is suspicious. The elf seems much less cantankerous and is much more, oh, yes, sir, whatever you say. He also keeps staring at Harry, then looking away when he's caught, which even from the perspective of someone used to being stared at, feels strange. His instincts aren't flawless, but Harry usually listens to them. Not here, though. He keeps his concerns to himself, not wanting to burden serious who seems glum again now that the holidays are winding down. And he's poised to return to his solitary existence without any company at Grimmauld Place. I mean, what else does he have to worry about? Have him worry about something. Take his mind off the shit. Got to find the rats to give to Unbelievable. Buckbeak, Yes, This is actually an instance where Harry could have been better served putting the blinders back on, letting the laser focus that sometimes misleads him turn his doubts about Creature into action. But Harry's torn and his touching desire to prioritize serious feelings wins out. And Ceres definitely needs the boost from the book. His gloom seeped through the house, oozing under doorways like some noxious gas so that all of them became infected by it. Depression farts, guys. Awful. <laughs> a great For the sentence. F- first time, Harry's not looking forward to going back to Hogwarts. Why? Why? Because Umbridge, Reign of Terror continues, and it's only getting stronger. Dumbledore is still pointedly ignoring Harry. There's no Quidditch, probably more homework than ever as the owls are coming closer. And the pull of the DA is all that keeps Harry from asking Sirius to stay put.
0: On the final day of the holidays, Harry's Hogwarts dread magnifies a millionfold When Snape comes to headquarters, for a word, Harry finds him and Sirius in the kitchen. Quote, the silence between them was heavy with mutual dislike. Snape opens by saying that he was supposed to meet with Harry alone. Quote, but by all means, stay black. I know you like to feel involved. Oh, that's so good. These five chapters are an amazing entry in the Snape line reading portfolio. Comments like this goad Sirius, grating the already raw wound of his feelings of inadequacy, provoking him to listen to the voice inside his head, telling him that it's okay to be reckless, rather than the voice, Dumbledore's, imploring him to be patient, wise. Snape's not just here to make Sirius feel useless, though. The headmaster has sent me to tell you, Potter, that it is his wish for you to study occlumency this term. What's occlumency? What is it? What is it? We're glad you asked, even if Snape isn't. The magical defense of the mind against external penetration. An obscure branch of magic, but a highly useful one. Right away, Harry is panicking. Ginny and Hermione just convinced him that he wasn't being possessed. But if he needs to learn this, as he puts it, occluthing. thing. (laughs) Does that mean his good friend Tom is still trying to hang after all? Snape is not getting specific, channeling his inner Dumbledore to share the bare fucking minimum. The headmaster thinks it's a good idea. That's all you need to know. You get private lessons once a week. Keep them secret, by the way, particularly from Umbridge. Oh, and one more thing. Snape's going to be running the lessons. Quote, Harry had the horrible sensation that his insides were melting. Extra lessons with Snape? What on earth had he done to deserve this? He looked quickly around at Sirius for support, which Sirius gives him, asking, why can't Dumbledore do it? Ah, why indeed. Yes. A key question. An amazing retort from Snape. I suppose because it is a headmaster's privilege to delegate less enjoyable tasks, said Snape silkily. I assure you I did not beg for the job. Of course not. Snape loathes Harry, can't bear to be around him, but he's also sworn to protect him, as we will learn. These lessons are Snape's inner dissonance regarding Harry, given form.
1: Snape doesn't want to stick around before he goes. One last thing. Harry's cover story, should anyone ask what he's doing down in Snape's dungeon, is remedial potions. Remember, you're an idiot.
0: Tough look for our guy He says, nobody
1: who has seen you in my classes could deny that you need them. I mean, it's honestly fair. The only time Harry really does well is when Snape is like, you're a fucking idiot. Concentrate. And then he concentrates and he kind of makes an okay potion. I'm sorry.
0: Counterpoint. I think that Snape's constant bullying is such a distraction to Harry that we see in Half-Blood Prince. As soon as Harry is free of that, he's quite adept. Granted, he's cheating every time. You you mean when Harry cheats with the
1: (laughs) cheating book. To think... Harry's only half a school year away from Slughorn thinking that Harry, who's secretly benefiting from the Half-Blood Princes, a.k.a. Snape's book, is a potions prodigy. I love Slughorn. Slughorn's great. Amazing. Slughorn's like, you're cool. You get an A. I don't even give a fuck what the shit is. I don't even care what the potion is. Ah, I love it. (laughs) Before Snape could leave, Sirius stops him with a warning. If Snape uses the lessons to give Harry a hard time, Snape will have to answer to him. Touching, Snape sneered. But surely you have noticed that Potter is very unlike his father? Yes, I have, said Sirius, proudly. Well, then you'll know he's so arrogant that criticism simply bounces off him, Snape said sleekly. Sirius moves towards Snape. They draw their wands and you think, oh, we're going to get it right here. The tension is already as thick as a layer of moldy cheese covering creatures' nest. Sirius says he doesn't care what Dumbledore believes. He knows Snape has not reformed. Oh, and how is Lucius Malfoy enjoying having his lapdog back at Death Eater camp? Snape again mocks Sirius for being confined to his mother's house. And then says, speaking of dogs, by the way, your good buddy, Lucius Malfoy, saw you. At King's Cross and knew exactly who the fuck you were, you idiots. Uh-huh. Then implies that Sirius's plan all along was to get spotted so he'd have an excuse not to leave the house again. Sirius jumps up, raises his wand. Are you calling me a coward? Why, yes, I suppose I am, said Snape. And then just then, here's our good friend, Arthur. Not napping? Weird. Hello! But what's been going on? That's Mr. Weasley. Well, Arthur... All three men tangled up in that moment are battling competing instincts and emotions. Snape's promise to protect Harry, to honor Lily's memory, is forever at odds with the fact that Harry's dad, who he looks just like, was an eminent dick. Serious desire to be an abiding member of the Order and a present godfather for Harry competes with his ingrained abhorrence of Snape and desire after losing more than a decade of his life to wrongful imprisonment to finally live openly and fully again. And Harry's hatred of Snape Love of Sirius and longtime trust of, but current resentment towards Dumbledore cloud his judgment and his focus.
0: Harry is deeply concerned about how Snape's words might impact Sirius. He, quote, had an unpleasant, constricted sensation in his chest. He did not want to say goodbye to Sirius. He had a bad feeling about this parting. He did not know when they would next see each other and felt that it was incumbent upon him to say something to Sirius to stop him doing anything stupid. This is agonizing to read now. This sense of foreboding sadly will not be misplaced as Harry's next in-person encounter with Sirius will be at the Department of Mysteries when Sirius joins the rescue effort to try to save Harry and there, falls. But there's also a notable role reversal at play here. All his life, what has Harry longed for? Parent. Now that he has a paternal figure in his life whom he truly loves, Harry finds himself thinking like the protector trying to be the one who takes care of the other person. Harry's had to take care of himself for so long, and now he wants to care for Sirius too. And of course, Sirius wants to do the same for him. It is a beautiful bond. Still budding, still growing, but fueled by such a genuine love and desire to help the other find peace and safety at last. I want you to take this, Sirius tells Harry, handing him a badly wrapped package. When Harry asks what it is, Sirius says, quote, a way of letting me know if Snape's giving you a hard time. There is no way to misinterpret this. Sirius is handing Harry a way to send a message, a way to communicate. But Sirius tells Harry not to open it here because he doubts Molly would approve. Quote, I want you to use it if you need me, all right? Think of how often concerns over what other people will think or do guides us in our lives. And Sirius is no different here. Not wanting to upset Molly or get Harry into trouble, or certainly have Dumbledore find out about this unsanctioned method of contact. But if everyone operated more openly and felt less compelled to conduct business in the shadows, how different could things have been? Maybe Sirius could have explained the mirror. Maybe then Harry would have remembered, known to use it to contact Sirius to see if Voldemort really had him in the Hall of Prophecies. Or maybe none of that would have been necessary at all if Dumbledore had just explained what was happening to Harry and ensured that he knew safe, secure ways to reach out to him and Sirius whenever he needed to, or if he had worked harder to make sure that Sirius felt involved and needed and validated. Absent any of that, Harry stows the package in his pocket, but, quote, he knew he would never use whatever it was. It would not be he, Harry, who lured Sirius from his place of safety, no matter how foully Snape treated him in their forthcoming occlumency classes. Harry fiercely wants a way to communicate more regularly with Sirius, even to stay with him in the house. But there's one thing that he wants more, to keep Sirius safe. Harry's desire for the latter ultimately contributing to compromising it is one of the series' greatest tragedies.
1: Lupin and Tonks see the kids back to Hogwarts via the night bus, and Lupin's parting words to Harry are laden with significance. Harry, I know you don't like Snape, but he is a superb acclimans, and we all, Sirius included, want you to learn to protect yourself. So work hard, all right? Superb Acklemans. Superb enough to lie to Voldemort, or as Harry and many readers wondered for years before the ultimate reveal in Hallows, to Dumbledore, perhaps? And will Harry be able to work hard when he's so full of dread? It's not promising that immediately he has to fend off Dumbledore's army lesson requests from everyone using the cover story Snape gave him. You take remedial potions? Asks Zachariah Smith, superciliously, having cornered Harry in the entrance hall after lunch. Good Lord, you must be terrible. Just what Harry needs, people mocking him, thinking he's stupid and doubting his abilities when he's supposed to be not only leading a defense group and building confidence, but staying focused on the lessons he's supposed to start receiving. At least he's got a date lined up with Cho in Hogsmeade. Though even that one only clicked into place after Harry nearly blew it. We need the distracted boyfriend meme, but instead of another woman, it's Harry looking at his DA schedule.
0: Harry heads to Snape's office that night filled with trepidation. He should be focusing on why Dumbledore wants him to learn this magic. But most of his attention is going toward worrying about spending more time with Snape. Split priorities. Split attention. Again. And here another source of distraction. Quote, Harry's attention was drawn toward the desk, however, where a shallow stone basin engraved with runes and symbols lay in a pool of candlelight. Harry recognized it at once. Dumbledore's pensive. Snape is using the basin to store memories during lessons, and this object will be at the heart of some of the most foundational moments, not only between these two characters, but for the entire series. In mere chapters, Harry will deliberately encroach on those memories, violating an already almost non-existent trust, and halting any progress in his relationship with Snape until the reveal that changes everything in Deathly Hallows. When Snape uses his final seconds of life to give Harry his memories, to take to this same pensive— where Harry will at last learn the truth of Snape's and Dumbledore's intentions. Here, now, there's just more of the same. Snape looking at Harry, quote, dislike etched in every line of his face.
1: It's tense from the start. With Snape telling Harry that he can only hope he's more adept at this than potions and demanding that Harry call him sir. Harry's dislike clouds his mind, but he's focused enough to ask some key questions. Why does Dumbledore think I need this, sir? I don't know, like... Can you think of any reason, Harry? Maybe it's those extremely vivid visions you've been having. Snape's sincerely surprised by the inquiry. (laughs) Surely even you could have worked that out by now, Potter. The Dark Lord is highly skilled at legitimacy. One more thing Harry doesn't know. What's that? When Snape explains that it's the ability to extract feelings and memories from another person's mind, Harry flips out. He can read minds? Said Harry, quickly his worst fears are confirmed, and this leads to an iconic Snape dunkfest when he talks about the nature of the mind and how complex it is. And only muggles talk of mind reading. The mind is not a book to be opened at will and examined at leisure. He continues, the mind is a complex and many-layered thing, Potter, or at least most minds are. But yes, gifted legilimens can penetrate their victim's mind. He says, the Dark Lord, for instance, almost always knows when somebody is lying to him. Almost, but crucially, not in Snape's case, as we'll learn in Hallows. And also, crucially, not in Narcissa Malfoy's case, as she lies to Voldemort about Harry being dead in order to get back her own son, Draco. That's a Harry to get back to the castle and lead the final phase of the Resistance. Blocking that penetration requires learning occlumency, quote, to shut down those feelings and memories that contradict the lie and so utter falsehoods in his presence without detection.
0: Harry's like, my guy, you can talk fancy all you want, but that sounds like mind-reading to me. He asks if Voldemort could be spying on them right now, and Snape explains he's too far away and that Hogwarts has protections in place. Quote, time and space matter in magic, Potter. So does eye contact, at least for legitimacy." Of course, Harry and Voldemort's connection is not bound by these typical rules. Snape, with great care, explains this to Harry. Quote, curse that failed to kill you seems to have forged some kind of connection between you and the Dark Lord. Uh, yeah. A Horcrux. Of course, that reveals two books away, though it will come from Snape, or at least his memories. Snape continues here. When Harry's mind is most relaxed, like when he's asleep, he's sharing Voldemort's thoughts and emotions, as one does with good friends. Quote, the headmaster thinks it inadvisable for this to continue. He wishes me to teach you how to close your mind to the Dark Lord. Harry's really confused by this. Why does Dumbledore want this to stop? It's been a useful source of intel, hasn't it, sir? <laughs> Quote, Snape stared at Harry for a few moments, still tracing his mouth with his finger. When he spoke again, it was slowly and deliberately, as though he weighed every word. We saw it when Harry arrived at Grimmauld Place, and we're seeing it again here. Dumbledore's refusal to tell Harry everything is filtering down to everybody else. It's becoming systemic. Snape is withholding certain facts here, but he reveals that until the attack on Mr. Weasley, Voldemort was not aware of this pathway that he and Harry shared. But the vision through Nagini's eyes, quote, represented such a powerful incursion upon the Dark Lord's thoughts that things finally changed.
1: Harry's rapt, interrupting Snape with question after question, despite Snape telling him, don't do that, Finally, he's getting some real info, and from such an unlikely source. Why is it, he asks, that he saw through the snake's eyes as if it were Voldemort's thoughts he was sharing? Do not say the Dark Lord's name, spat Snape. Harry pushes back, but Dumbledore says it all the time. Dumbledore is an extremely powerful wizard, Snape muttered. While he may feel secure enough to use the name the rest of us, he rubbed his left forearm apparently unconsciously the spot where Harry knew the Dark Mark was burned into his skin. And there's so much here. Snape's remarks reveal that He doubts his own power, and yet he will prove equal to Voldemort. The Dark Lord will kill him, yes, but he'll never uncover his secret and his failure to understand what really happened between Snape and Dumbledore and Malfoy will be part of his undoing. This moment, this entire sequence is about closing one's mind, but really, it's among our greatest windows into Snape, the competing forces at play, the war within himself. Begrudgingly, Severus offers up more. He saw into Negedian's mind because Voldemort was possessing the snake at that moment. How do you know? It is enough that we know. The upshot is clear. The Dark Lord knows Harry has access to his thoughts. And now that he knows, the worry is clear. He's also deduced that the process is likely to work in reverse. Oh, shit. Not good. And he might try to make me do things, sir. He might. He will, as we'll see at book's end, when he plants a vision of Sirius imprisoned in Harry's mind in order to lure Harry to the Department of Mysteries.
0: Snape raises his wand and begins to remove memories from his mind, literally pulling Lillian James, his connections to and motivations regarding Harry, from him, turning the truth that could be a portal instead into a barrier. Snape is deliberately selecting these moments, harping on the person who is the reason that he hates Harry and on the person who's the reason that he's dedicated the rest of his life to trying to save him. This is the battle within dissonance incarnate. And Naturally, Snape says nothing about it. As we'll learn in The Prince's Tale, this is the bargain that he made with Dumbledore. Quote, but never, never tell Dumbledore. This must be between us. Swear it. I cannot bear, especially Potter's son. I want your word. My word, Severus, that I shall never reveal the best of you. As we will see in these lessons and be reminded of time and again, the best of Snape and the worst of Snape are inextricable.
1: Snape tells Harry to take out his wand, and he grants Harry permission to use it to attempt to disarm him in any way that he can. I am about to attempt to break in your mind, he says. We are going to see how well you resist. He then issues an exceedingly rare compliment of Harry, revealing that he's been told Harry has shown aptitude at throwing off the Imperius Curse. Similar powers, he says, are needed for this. And then without any further preamble, without instructing Harry on what to do, brace yourself now. The gentlemen's! Harry is not ready. The office swims before his eyes, replaced by memories flash before his consciousness. Dudley receiving a new bike, as Harry's heart was quote bursting with jealousy. Ripper chasing up a tree. The Sorting Hat telling him he'd do well in Slytherin. Hermione as a cat. Cho under the mistletoe. No, said a voice in Harry's head as the memory of Cho drew nearer. You're not watching that. You're not watching it. It's private. Harry snaps to pain in his knees. Once he's a well on Snape's wrist, he inadvertently produced a stinging hex. You let me get in too far, Snape says you lost control.
0: But, Snape says for a first attempt, that wasn't so bad. Harry stopped him, though he wasted time and energy shouting, quote, you must remain focused. Repel me with your brain and you will not need to resort to your wand. This is a signature Snape line, so emblematic of what he prizes, of how he lives. But mental fortitude has never been Harry's strength. He's not brawn over brains necessarily, but he's heart, soul, the source of his boundless courage, but also his lack of discipline. Harry presses. He's trying, he says, but Snape's not telling him what to do. Clear your mind, Potter, Snape says. Let go of all emotion. But Harry's too angry. He's losing the battle with himself, letting his fury best his focus. Quote, let go of his anger, he could as easily detach his legs. Snape strikes again. This time, Harry sees the Hungarian horntail, and then his parents in the mirror of said, Think about this, Snape looking into Harry's eyes, Lily's eyes, as Harry thinks of seeing Lily. Then Harry sees Cedric dead on the ground, and he screams, No! Finds himself back on the ground, his brain aching. Now Snape is the furious one. Get up, said Snape sharply. Get up. You are not trying. You are making no effort. You are allowing me access to memories you fear, handing me weapons. This is a immensely powerful idea that the things inside of us can be turned against us, corrupted by our enemies, used as tools to undo us. Not so dissimilar from Boggarts or Dementors and what those things represent, how they take the things inside of you and use it to bring you down. I told you to empty yourself of emotion, Snape says. Yeah, Harry replies. Well, I'm finding that hard at the moment. And then we get an iconic line from Snape. Then you will find yourself easy prey for the Dark Lord. Fools who wear their hearts proudly on their sleeves, who cannot control their emotions, who wallow in sad memories and allow themselves to be provoked this easily. Weak people, in other words, they stand no chance against his powers. He will penetrate your mind with absurd ease, Potter. And he's right. We will see how right he is. Snape's comments, of course are not just an attack on Harry, but they are fully informed by his own experience, his own efforts to distance himself from the pain that altered the course of his life. I am not weak, said Harry in a low voice, fury now pumping through him so that he thought he might attack Snape in a moment. Then prove it. Master yourself, spat Snape. Control your anger, discipline your mind. We shall try again. Get ready now. Legilimens."
1: Start the film reel again, Uncle Vernon nailing the letterbox shut, the Dementors at the lake, the race through a windowless passageway with Mr. Weasley, a, a door at the end of the corridor. I know, I know, Harry screams in triumph. At last, at long last, he's figured out where this imagery has come from. The corridor he keeps dreaming of its a place he's been. It's a place he ran through with Mr. Weasley on the way to his trial, and he realizes that Snape Stop the spell this time. What happened then, Potter? He's looking at Harry intently, pressing for clarity. What's in the Department of Mysteries? What did you say? Snape asked quietly, and Harry saw with deep satisfaction that Snape was unnerved. Harry realized that's where Arthur was when he got attacked and realized that that must be where the weapon that Voldemort wants is. There are many things in the Department of Mysteries, Potter, Snape replies, few of which you would understand and none of which concern you. Do I make myself plain? This is as we'll learn, is a huge lie. The secret of Harry's entire life is behind that door. But this moment is also a sign of Harry's failure to come. His inability to prioritize the need to shut his mind over his curiosity to discover what this portal will show him. Snape ends the lesson, a sign, not that Harry needed another one, of the magnitude of what Harry has just figured out. Snape tells Harry to return Wednesday for another lesson to empty his mind of all emotion every night before bed.
0: Harry, white and feverish, pain in his scar, runs off to tell Ron and Hermione what he's realized. And Hermione instantly makes another connection. This must be the door Sturgis Podmore was arrested for trying to get through. Ron reveals that those who work in the Department of Mysteries are called unspeakables because no one knows what they do. Weird place to have a weapon, he says. Or literally the perfect place, as Hermione notes. Though she wrongly assumes that the weapon in this case, must be something the ministry is developing. Harry, feeling ill, escapes to the quiet cool of the dormitory, but just as he reaches it, pain cripples him. Voldemort's laughter is in his ears, unbridled joy in his heart. Quote, a wonderful, wonderful thing had happened. Ron slaps Harry, and as the feeling of jubilation fades, Harry realizes that the maniacal laughter that he's hearing is actually coming from him. So deep is the connection that he and Voldemort share. Harry tells Ron that something Voldemort has been hoping for has happened. And then as Ron helps him into bed, we get this line. Quote, he could not help feeling that his first foray into occlumency had weakened his mind's resistance rather than strengthening it. And he wondered, with a feeling of great trepidation, what had happened to make Lord Voldemort the happiest he had been in 14 years. What a fabulous chapter. So rich. Oh, my God. Incredible.
1: Chapter 25, The Beetle at Bay. Harry learns immediately what that thing was. There's been a breakout at Azkaban. The next morning's Daily Prophet shows the photos of ten escapees, Voldemort's death eaters, including Antonin Dolohoff and Augustus Rookwood. Two names we recognize from Karkaroff's testimony that we saw in the pensive. And a third from that memory, Bellatrix Lestrange, who tortured Neville's parents into madness from the book. Like Sirius, she retained vestiges of great good looks. Who wrote this, Voldemort? But something, perhaps Azkaban. <laughs> amazing. That's great. <laughs> But something, perhaps Azkaban, had taken most of her beauty. The headline implies that Sirius is behind the breakout, a devastating reminder that the Ministry and Prophet are committed to willful ignorance with anything that has to do with Voldemort. The Dementors going over to Voldemort's side was just what Dumbledore has been talking about for a while now. Yes. But, of course, Fudge has studiously ignored this. He not only blames the breakout on, quote, outside help— A.K.A. Sirius Black, but still refers to Sirius as the first escapee. Barty Jr.'s confession, (laughs) not meriting a mention, I guess.
0: Honestly, astonishing.
1: Yeah. Harry can't believe his fellow (laughs) students aren't terrified, nor that Fudge still refuses to see the light. But as Hermione notes, he's gone too far at this point. He's in too deep. Yes. And there's more bad news in this morning's edition. Patrick Bode. Harry met in the elevator with Arthur and whom our trio saw over Christmas in the same ward as Lockhart and Neville's parents, discovered in bed, strangled by the devil's snare that the healer believed was an innocent potted plant. Bode, we'll learn, was an unspeakable put under the imperious Curse and forced to try to retrieve the prophecy, then murdered when he began to show signs of recovery.
0: That's a tough way to go, by the way. Put under the Imperious Curse, descending into madness when you touch the prophecy, and then... Throttled by a plant. It's like while sharing a room with Lockhart.
1: It's ex- <laughs> extremely easy to kill people here. At fucking also, why did nobody do this to Harry? Send him a plant. Well, as you noted, send him a broomstick. <laughs> send him a Jinx broomstick. He's dead within two weeks. So my favorite take, the whole podcast. <laughs> Jinx the broomstick. Send it to him, and you got him year one. He's been there three weeks. He's dead.
0: Oh my God. I miss that take. Yes. <laughs> A more innocent time on Binge Mode when we could just talk about Quidditch all the time. The miserable reveals continue. The homie Hagrid
1: is on probation. Tough time for my guy. This is
0: an amazing line from Hagrid.
1: You might not have picked up on it, but the inspection didn't go too well. Yeah, Hagrid, no shit. The inspection didn't <laughs> you go so don't well. say. You don't say. <laughs> Literally, Umbridge was like talking to you like you were an idiot. Oh my God, Hagrid.
0: Also, the news of the breakout has spread. Many of the escapees are infamous, feared widely mm-hmm. among those who grew up in wizarding households. Some relatives of their victims are Hogwarts students, quote, who now found themselves the unwilling objects of a gruesome sort of reflected fame. One of them, Susan Bones, Sue Bones, as Sue Jason bones. likes to call her. <laughs> Suey Bones. Tells Harry that she now has a sense of what it's like to be him. And like Hardly, though it's an interesting point, and as we'll learn in the first chapter of Half-Blood Prince, Voldemort personally kills Amelia Bones, Susan's aunt, and one of the witches who led Harry's hearing at the beginning of order, making Susan's tale all the more tragic. Indeed, the tide around Harry is finally turning. Not everyone is as obstinate as corn fudge. Not everyone is satisfied with the company line anymore. Some of the students who doubted Harry really have something against him or Dumbledore, yes. Some of them are parroting their family positions. Some of them are just sheeps falling prey to groupthink. And some of them just don't know any better than to trust always in the establishment. But whatever the particular reason, that doubt, now that it's bubbling, creates internal strife. A mass breakout from Azkaban is not an easy thing to ignore. Citizens of the magical world have been taught, wrongly but even so, that the fortress is unbreachable. Now, amid this evidence to the contrary, something has to give. And when it does, many find Mm -hmm. themselves drawn back to the only other option that now tracks the one that Harry and
1: Dumbledore have been providing. The teachers have changed it up, too. They're whispering in corridors, clearly not free to speak in front of Umbridge because there's a new decree. Number 26.
0: Enough already. Here's
1: what it says. Teachers are hereby banned from giving students any information that is not strictly related to the subjects they are paid to teach. A lot of loopholes in this one, guys. <laughs> a ton of loopholes, as is pointed out to the Umbridge star. Far from leaving her abashed, the breakout has made Umbridge more determined than ever to regulate life at Hogwarts. She cracks down. There's no internal struggle for her. No small voice Uh asking if it might be time to give in to reason. She is a fanatic, drunk on power, determined to bend the world to her will. She's monitoring every divination and care of magical creatures lesson. From the book, it seemed to Harry that Umbridge was steadily depriving him everything that made his life at Hogwarts worth living.
0: Everyone in the DA is working harder than ever after the breakout. But most particularly, Neville. The dude Neville. Quote, the news of his parents' attacker's escape had wrought a strange and even slightly alarming change in him. He hasn't mentioned the encounter that he had with Harry and co on the closed ward over the holidays or the Death Eaters' escape, but he's working harder than anyone in the room, improving rapidly. (laughs) Neville has always been afraid. He has always lacked the confidence to try to overcome those fears until now. Now, his primary motivator is a desire to be better, stronger, able to defend himself and others to prevent what happened to his parents from happening to other people and to make those responsible for that atrocity pay. When Harry teaches them the shield charm, only Hermione masters it faster than Neville. A truly astonishing development.
1: This is quite a contrast with what's going on with Harry because he's getting steadily worse at occlumency. With each lesson, his scar now pains him almost constantly, and he's regularly feeling snapshots of emotions that are not his. From the book, he had the horrible impression that he was slowly turning into a kind of aerial that was tuned into tiny fluctuations in Voldemort's mood. And he was sure he could date this increased sensitivity firmly from his first Occlumency lesson with Snape. Harry's supposed to be closing his mind, learning to defend himself, but he's finding himself more susceptible than ever. And he's dreaming of the corridor All the time, overcome by longing as he stands by the door. When he tells Ron and Hermione this, he says, I just wish the door would open. I'm sick of standing, staring at it. Don't worry, my guy. This, as Hermione notes, not at all what he should be thinking or feeling. Uh -uh. Dumbledore wants him studying occlumency to stop this stuff, not to try and advance further into them. Ron in class, in true Ron fashion, boots up his version of the Ringer's tinfoil Tuesday pod with this conspiracy theory. Maybe the change in Harry's state isn't an accident. maybe. Snape's in on it, trying to open Harry's mind for Voldemort, not close it. Hermione is like, everyone shut up and listen to me, because you're all idiots. She says, Dumbledore trusts him. If we can't trust Dumbledore, then we can't trust anyone. Great point from Hermione.
0: Well, at least young love is in the air. It's Valentine's Day which means it's time for Harry's date with Cho in Hogsmeade. By the way, normal near two-month break between romantic encounters for teenagers who definitely only want to fuck all the time. What is this? What is this, Harry? That morning at breakfast, Hermione receives a mystery letter and then asks Harry if he can please meet her at the three broomsticks around midday, noting that it's, really important, and telling him in response to his comment that Cho, quote, might be expecting (laughs) him to spend the whole day with her as though dating a hot, fun, smart, popular girl is an immense chore that he can bring Cho along. What could go wrong? (laughs) Initially, date day actually goes well, with Harry and Cho talking effortlessly about the only thing that Harry loves more than Expelliarmus, Quidditch. But the mood starts to shift when Pansy Parkinson shouts at them about Cedric. In Hogsmeade. they see a poster about the escaped Death Eaters, and Cho astutely notes how odd it is that Dementors swarmed the village when Sirius was loose, but are nowhere to be seen now. They really are
1: outside Ministry control. As the rain begins to fall, Cho ushers Harry into Madam Puddifoot's for a coffee. Mm. By the way, when your date says, do you want coffee? Your date wants you awake. Ooh. I'm just saying, this is well-known. <laughs> Cute, isn't it? She says. They sit near Roger Davies, Ravenclaw Quidditch captain and good-looking man who's hanging out with a beautiful blonde that he's about to f- basically fuck on the table as Cho and <laughs> Harry have a row. Can we pause for a moment and talk about Roger? Yeah. So this hot blonde, Yeah, we'll learn in a moment that he's
0: asked Cho out on a date, and he took Floor to the Yule Ball. He's like, a fucking stud.
1: What is going on
0: with Roger
1: Davies? Roger Davies is in, like, fucking Flynn out here. <laughs> fucking, had he still a little baby boy? <laughs> Harry embarrassed wanting to hit it off with Cho, but also having no idea how to do that, then jumps face-first into a massive... Pile of shit. Or uh, listen, do you want to come with me to the Three Broomsticks at lunchtime? <laughs> I'm meeting Hermione Granger there. Oh God, Harry, no! <laughs> you know who I had—that girl that I hang out all the time when she's not uh, writing Vic the Dick. <sighs> Cho raised her eyebrows. You're meeting Hermione Granger today. Literally, does not occur to Harry no. that it sounds like he's meeting Hermione for a date. No, or that he should clarify in any way to show Literally that anyway that Hermione is his friend. As Cho turns cold. Harry battles himself over whether to reach for her hand, and he observes it's harder to reach out for her hand than for a snitch. Cho, watching Roger fucking explore the inner recesses of this blonde's mouth with his tongue, tells Harry he asked her out. Harry, who had grabbed the sugar bowl to excuse his sudden lunging movement across the table, could not think why she was telling him this. Now Harry is confused. They're both just sitting at the table on a date that could be going better if they were just communicating better, mistakenly thinking the other person would rather be on a date with someone else. Did Harry
0: think it couldn't get worse? Because it's about to. Joe brings up Cedric and Harry is stunned. I've been meaning to ask you for ages. Did Cedric, did he mention me at all before he died? (laughs) Now we joke often and with very good reason about Harry's Abysmal flailing attempts at romance in this book. But in this particular moment, very clear that this was doomed from the start. It was never going to work with these two. Harry's not ready to be in a relationship because he doesn't have a fucking clue how to be in one. And Cho isn't ready because she is not over Cedric, period. She likes Harry, sure. But as Hermione noted in the wake of Harry and Cho's wet kiss, she's lost in a sea of conflicting emotion, unsure of how to parse everything that's in her heart. He asks her, Please not to talk about Cedric. And he's attempting to be cheerful, but he is seriously miscalculating. She says that she thought he'd understand. She needs sure. to talk about it with someone, and surely he does too. And Harry what, then— What am I,
1: your therapist? <laughs> Give me $125 every 45 minutes.
0: <laughs> he then embeds his feet another couple feet deep <laughs> in the shit here. Yeah by saying oh i do talk about it regularly with hermione with hermione
1: (laughs) i spend every waking moment with her
0: harry is so dim it's unbelievable oh you'll talk to hermione granger but you won't talk to me and then when cho adds that she's not sure why he asked her out if he was just gonna go meet other girls today it Finally, it clicks for Harry, though he completely mishandles his effort to clarify by laughing in response to his dawning comprehension. (laughs)
1: It's not
0: like that, he says. And then when he laughs, Cho springs to her feet. And with the whole shop watching, she flees.
1: Harry enters the three broomsticks early and Hermione flags him down. And he's like, I was just talking about you with Cho.
0: (laughs) Been waiting for you, baby.
1: (laughs) She's also there with Luna Lovegood and Rita Skeeter. What, Rita Skeeter, who immediately is like, ooh, a date? If only Cho (laughs) knew that Harry was meeting three women. (laughs) (laughs) It's none of your business if Harry's been with a hundred girls, Hermione told Rita coolly. The talk then turns, as it so often does, from teenage love to the Death Eaters living among us. And we realize that this is what it's all about. Hermione wants Rita to report Harry's story. All the facts, exactly as Harry reports them. Hermione understands the importance of a free press. We're talking (laughs) Death Eater names and Voldemort's current appearance. Rita says the prophet won't print it. They won't run it. Sorry.
0: Does Hermione understand the free press? She's literally like print exactly what he says. You have no liberty to do anything on your
1: own here. At least it's the truth. (laughs) But ah, that's why Luna's here because her dad, the editor of the Quibbler. Rita, it turns out, not a fan of the quibs. I could manure my garden with the contents (laughs) of that rag. Savage. Yeah, fucking. (laughs) Jesus. Good news, Hermione says. You can inject a little bit of your own DNA into it because Mr. Lovegood has agreed to print Harry's interview. Hermione, remember, also openly mocked the quibbler, but she says that Harry needs to broadcast his story more widely in an unfiltered fashion. And she also knows that people are primed for this. They want to hear about it. They want to read about it. They need to know what's going on. Yes. Her determination to pursue the truth has trumped her personal prejudice in this case. Strange bedfellows, indeed, but in service of a greater mission. Ready to tell the public truth, Harry, even though I didn't give you any warning and you definitely haven't wanted to speak about this to anyone but me and Ron before? I suppose. Well, okay, then. Fire away. Chapter 26 seen and
0: unforeseen. The interview is not easy for Harry. Rita, showing uncommon journalistic fortitude and also, of course, her usual nose for the salacious, presses him for every detail. And knowing that this is his one chance to get it all out there, he obliges. His desire for the wider wizarding world to know and accept the truth is now all-consuming but Harry has also been understandably reserved about sharing these details, which are immensely painful and private. And even though he knows how important this chance is, he's also worried about how this account will be received. He was just starting to feel a little less judged as he walked through the halls. Is that all going to start up again in earnest after his account is published? Well, ultimately, he decides it doesn't matter. Stopping Voldemort, stopping Bellatrix, that's what matters most. One of Harry's first and most fervent supporters after he gives his interview is Neville, who gives us a glimpse into his own personal internal strife when he says, people should know. Neville still hasn't spoken about his own relationship to Bellatrix and the Death Eaters, to how Voldemort's soldiers tore his own family apart, but that only makes his admiration for Harry all the more fierce. Harry's courage is something to strive for, and his example helps Neville unlock something within himself.
1: If only Ron could unlock the true Weasley king within instead, my guy misses 14 straight saves. Fourteen! A sieve out here. Fourteen! A sieve theoretically slows the flow of material (laughs) across its border. Ron, a.k.a. the king, Not doing any of it. (laughs) Very, 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 very tough. The only thing going for Gryffindor Quidditch right now is Ginny's pretty good. Yes. Ginny's pretty good, guys. She's been out there. She stole her brother's brooms from an early age, been flying on her own. (laughs) Harry harps on Umbridge, looking at him with a gloating smile during the match, filling him with anger. Exactly the opposite of the thing he's supposed to be doing, which is not. Feeling emotions, emptying himself. Yes. Sure enough, that night he dreams of the corridor. And this time the door is open. Mm. When Ron's snore wakes him, Harry's hand is actually extended in midair. From the book, he let it fall with a feeling of mingled disappointment and guilt. He knew he should not have seen the door, but at the same time, felt so consumed with curiosity about what was behind it that he could not help feeling annoyed with Ron. If he could have saved his snore for just another minute. Very
0: tough stuff from Harry there. On Monday morning, A pack, uh, excuse me, channeling Vernon there, a pack of owls lands in front of Harry at the breakfast table. It's reader mail for our guy. Quibbler article has run. Harry Potter speaks out at last the truth about he who must not be named in the night I saw him return. Some readers still think Harry's a nutter, but many are convinced, including one who, according to Ron, put in a photograph too. Wow. (laughs) As they're opening the letters, Umbridge walks over. This is a massive L for her. She's been fighting relentlessly to suppress Harry's story all year, even before he and she arrived at Hogwarts. Remember, as we'll learn, she sent the Dementors. During term, under her nose, he went rogue and he went public. Pop corn? He's not going to be happy about this. Harry is, to his credit, unwaveringly honest, He tells her he gave the interview in Hogsmeade, at which point she immediately bans him from returning to the village and gives him more detention naturally and issues a new educational decree threatening anyone reading the quibbler with expulsion. This is, of course, a massive miscalculation, as Hermione notes, by banning the magazine, Umbridge ensured that everyone would want to read it, and so they do. Umbridge is too blind to anticipate the reactions to her actions. She acts without ever considering the consequences. By the end of the day, the whole school is quoting the interview, concealing the magazine and myriad magical ways to avoid detection. The teachers have been reading it too and to find coded ways to praise Harry. Extra points from Sprout just for passing the water can. Yeah. Sugar mice from Flitwick. Hysterical tears from Trelawney and a proclamation a of a long life. You're going to live forever now, Harry. I was wrong. 12 children and a career Twelve as a minister of magic.
1: It's fucking.
0: <laughs> Honestly, that just sounds like tough on Jenny. 12 children. That's my
1: take. Strap
0: that wand up, Harry. Enough. <laughs> Even Cho forgives him, lauds oh,
1: his bravery. And then Seamus, yes, oh Seamus. Unbelievable says stuff. Says he believes him too. I'm so totally incredible to, <laughs> <laughs> to my ma'am. I'm to my ma'am. Are you uh Though we
0: have a note for Harry. If Seamus forgiving you is. Quote, something just as good as Cho finally forgiving you, you and Cho really were doomed from the start. Delightfully, Malfoy and his fellow sons of Death Eaters are facing an internal battle of their own here. They're furious that Harry named their fathers in the piece. But they can't do anything about it because speaking openly of the article would violate Umbridge's decree. Quite a pickle. And how widely read is the issue? Dad's reprinting, Luna tells Harry, her eyes bulging with excitement. He can't believe it. He says people seem even more interested in this, the crumple horned Snorkaxe. Is it real?
1: After a celebration in the Gryffindor common room highlighted by Fred and George's enlarged quibbler that shouts, eat dung, Umbridge, (laughs) Harry begins to feel headachy and ill, and he goes to bed early. Bum, 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 another dream. He sees a man kneeling before him. He looks down at his hands and sees long white fingers. He's speaking in this high, cold voice. He is Voldemort. Uh-oh. And then he's saying that he's been badly advised as Rookwood, the former Department of Mysteries worker and escaped Askman Death Eater, trembles on the floor. Avery told me Bode would be able to remove it. Bode could never have taken it, Master. Bode would have known he could not. Undoubtedly, that is why he fought so hard against Malfoy's imperious curse. Voldemort laments the months he spent on fruitless schemes. And thanks him for the information he's provided. When Rookwood leaves, Harry turns in the room and looks into the mirror. He sees, quote, a face whiter than a skull, red eyes with slits for pupils, and he screams himself awake. Immediately, he tells Ron, they realize that the thing Bode couldn't remove must be the weapon. That's the weapon, the prophecy, we'll soon learn. Ron's response to the occurrence, but particularly the highly alarming nugget about Harry being Voldemort in uh-huh. the dream, is really the only logical one. We got to tell somebody. Yes. But Harry is like, I don't know. It's like, uh." (laughs) I haven't got to tell anyone, said Harry shortly. I wouldn't have seen it at all if I could do occlumency. I'm supposed to have learned to shut this stuff out. That's what they want. You fucking Right, Harry, exactly. I haven't practiced my piano in weeks (laughs) and the recitals tomorrow. (laughs) My God. Yes, that's what they want, but it's not happening. Instead of admitting this or asking for help, Harry remains guarded, both because he's ashamed that he's failing and because some part of Voldemort's emotions are seeping into him. He is curious about what he's seeing. He wants to know more. A glimpse like this won't quiet that voice. This is real intel, more than he's ever had. A feeling reinforced when Harry shares the dream with Hermione the next day as they're laying in bed and she's (laughs) able to piece together why Voldemort was so skilled. (laughs) After Harry notes that he saw Malfoy in the uh, Department of Mysteries the day after his hearing that Lucius probably hit Sturgis with the Imperius Curse that day. No sooner does she make these breakthroughs than she gently scolds Harry for seeing this at all. The tension between eating up all these little morsels, like the sustenance of life and knowing it's wrong to keep doing that, extends to Harry's inner circle as well.
0: And it's not like Harry can keep what he's learning quiet. At Occlum and C, the vision of Rookwood appears in Harry's mind, and thus Snape's. And Snape is understandably pissed. Dim though you may be. <laughs> Harry looked back at Snape, hating him. I would have thought that after two months' worth of lessons, you might have made some progress. How many other dreams about the Dark Lord have you had? Harry lies, saying just that one. And Snape says, perhaps Harry enjoys these visions. Perhaps they make him feel special, important. It is a deeply uncharitable thing to say, but it is... Not completely off. Harry likes the information that the dreams are giving him, though it's not because he thinks he's special. It's because no one else in his life is giving him any information, particularly Dumbledore. Snape says you are neither special nor important, and it is not up to you to find out what the Dark Lord is saying to his Death Eaters. No. That's your job, isn't it? Harry shouted him. He had not meant to say it. It had burst out of him in temper. For a long moment, they stared at each other. Harry convinced he had gone too far. But there was a curious, almost satisfied expression on Snape's face when he answered. Yes, Potter, he said, his eyes glinting. That is my job. Harry and Snape have never before shared a moment like this. Openly, overtly addressing Snape's role as Mm -hmm. spy. The mere fact of their occlumency lessons, of course, is an acknowledgement of Snape's role, just as Snape's actions during the parting of the ways was in Goblet of Fire. But this is something different, a stride forward in their shared understanding.
1: That lasts about 12 seconds. When Snape casts the spell again, Harry remains focused on Snape as the memories play, and this time he raises his wand and shouts, Protego! From the book, Snape staggered. His wand flew upward away from Harry, and suddenly Harry's mind was teeming with memories that were not his. A hook-nosed man was shouting at a cowering woman while a small, dark-haired boy cried in a corner. A greasy-haired teenager sat alone in a dark room, pointing his wand at the ceiling, shooting down flies. A girl was laughing as a scrawny boy tried to mount a buckling broomstick. These are Snape's memories. He shouts, enough, lifting the spell and forcing Harry backward into his shelves as Snape shakes and turns white. Snape actually praises Potter. Well, Potter, that was certainly an improvement. Uh Think about what just happened. Harry broke into Snape's mind. Snape, who was such an accomplished occlumens that he's able to embed himself back into Voldemort's service, despite really serving Dumbledore's interests. Like the reactions Mm -hmm. to Harry being able to produce a full. this instance speaks to Harry's (laughs) prodigious power, but it also shows us hints of something equally crucial. Snape and Harry both had bad childhoods shaped by neglect and feeling like outcasts. From the book again, Harry did not speak. He felt that to say anything might be dangerous. He was sure he had just broken into Snape's memories, that he had just seen scenes from Snape's childhood. And it was unnerving to think that the crying little boy who had watched his parents shouting was actually standing in front of him with such loathing in his eyes. What prevented Harry from turning into a man with loathing in his eyes? His choices, his love, the things that Snape never got. When
0: Snape hits Harry with the spell again... Harry finds himself in the corridor, and for the first time ever, he goes through the door into the black, circular room with blue-flamed candles and doors all around. Snape is irate, even more so than when Harry broke into his own mind. Notable. Harry tells him truthfully that he doesn't know what just happened. He doesn't know how he got there. You were lazy and sloppy, Potter. It is small wonder that the Dark Lord—and then Harry cuts him off. Can you tell me something, sir? Why do you call Voldemort the Dark Lord? I've only ever heard Death Eaters call him that. Before Snape can reply to that provocation, there is a scream, and they both flee for the entrance hall, where they find throngs. Observing Professor Trelawney, wand in one hand, sherry bottle in another, her trunks before her, Umbridge has sacked her and is standing there, humiliating her. I've been here 16 years. Hogwarts is my home, Trelawney cries. It was your home, Umbridge says, and Harry is revolted to see that she is clearly enjoying this. Professor McGonagall emerges from the crowd to comfort Trelawney. McGonagall, who has openly mocked Trelawney in the past and thinks that divination is a total joke, such is the force of Umbridge's evil. Anyone decent must unite against her, even if doing so conflicts with some other belief that you hold. Then Dumbledore arrives, framed as Harry observes impressively in the doorway. He says that Umbridge may have the right to dismiss his teachers, but not to send them away from the castle. And when Trelawney says she'll go anyway, we get this reply No, said Dumbledore sharply. It is my wish that you remain, Sybil. At book's end, we will better understand this moment, which, while undoubtedly driven in part by compassion, is mostly a practical defense effort. Trelawney made the prophecy that Voldemort is seeking. She cannot leave the school. Mm-hmm. She's one more pawn on Dumbledore's board stored where he wants, where he allows, watched by his eyes. When Umbridge asks what Dumbledore is going to do once Umbridge appoints a new divination professor who needs Trelawney's lodgings, Dumbledore says, that won't be a problem. Quote, you see, I have already found a new divination teacher, and he will prefer lodgings on the ground floor. Umbridge is furious, but Dumbledore reminds her that she can only appoint teachers if he fails to, and he hasn't failed. May I introduce you? He turns toward the door. This is Ferenz, said Dumbledore happily to a thunderstruck umbrage. I think you'll find him suitable. And now, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. <laughs>
1: Binge Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. Experience the fun and yes. excitement of Universal's Islands of Adventure, yes. Universal Studios yes. Florida, and Universal's Volcano yes. Bay. There's a Universal Hotel for every style and budget. Yes, and now there's a brand new hotel that puts you right in the heart of the action. Yes, Universal's Aventura Hotel is sleek and stylish with commanding views of all three theme parks from its very own rooftop bar. Yes, plus,
0: when you stay at one of Universal Orlando's hotels every morning, you can breeze into one of three amazing theme parks via water taxi or shuttle an hour
1: before other guests. Oh, don't miss the amazing new show that's making nights at Universal Studios brighter and bolder than ever. Universal Orlando's cinematic celebration is now showing on... Select nights with a colossal celebration of music, water, and light that transforms the park and takes you into the movies like never before.
0: No matter what time of year you visit Universal Orlando Resort, you'll find exciting events to make
1: your vacation more epic. Go to www.universalorlando.com to plan your visit today. Yes. Binge Mode is also brought to you by Casper. Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time.
0: With three mattress models, Mm. the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and Mm. cradle your natural geometry.
1: Not to mention, the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature
0: throughout the night. And... It's delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-that-sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S.
1: and Canada. But the best part is that you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep on a trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Casper was kind enough to send me a mattress. It's the original, and I find it quite comfortable. The box... Was small as they say. Get
0: $50 towards select mattresses by visiting Casper.com slash binge mode and using binge mode at checkout.
1: That's Casper.com slash binge mode. Offer code binge mode for $50 off your mattress purchase.
0: Terms and conditions
1: apply. And now back to binge mode. Chapter 27 The Centaur and the Sneak. Yes. Friends has the school. All in a tizzy. I'll say. Pravati and lavender are like, damn. It helps them get over their despondence about Trelawney. Friends, of course, is a Sylph? sylf self sylf self. centaur. I'd like to fuck. I'll say. Although I got to tell you, it's you know, taking your life in your own hands. <laughs> Friends who has shared a memorable meeting <laughs> laden with prophetic undertones with Harry and Stone greets Harry warmly for a centaur. Let's say that it was foretold that we would meet again, he says. This naturally awes the rest of the class friends, opens up by saying he'd, of course, prefer to be in the Forbidden Forest teaching class, but we can't do it. That's why I had Dumbly paint up the classroom so it looks like a forest. Looks really good, doesn't it? He's incredible. He should just do interior design. (laughs) He shouldn't even be a headmaster anymore. His hurt has banished him because he agreed to work for Dumbledore, work for men, essentially, They see this as a betrayal of our kind. Harry wonders if Bane, who called Forenz a common mule for letting Harry ride him in stone, is responsible for the hoofprint on Forenz's chest. Lie back on the floor, said Forenz in his calm voice, and observe the heavens. Here is written for those who can see the fortune of our races. That's Forenz's number one pickup line. Lie on the floor and observe (laughs) the heavens.
0: I'll be honest, it's working. (laughs)
1: Friends, not intentionally unkindly, begins his class by basically dunking on humanity's self-flattering nonsense and explaining how centaurs do things. We watch the skies for the great tides of evil or change that is sometimes marked there. He speaks with such admiration that it's clear he did not want to turn his back on his herd. He's proud to be a centaur. But he's also determined to fight, as he told Harry and Bane and Ronan and Stone. I set myself against what is lurking in this forest, Bane, Yes with humans alongside me if I must. What lurked in the forest then is lurking in the wider world. Now, Voldemort's evil. Friends tells the class that over the past decade, the signs have shown that wizards were living in what is essentially a brief peace between two wars. Mars, bringer of battle. Shines brightly above us, suggesting that the fight must break out again soon. This language reflects the Mars is bright tonight, heralds that we heard in stone. Mars, the god of war, the war that's been foretold, that's beginning now. That Harry and Frenzy both feel bound to fight, no matter the alienation doing so brings. And no matter the bedfellows they must delightfully lie with to observe the heavens. (laughs) Observe the heavens with me, lavender. (laughs)
0: Again, I'm in. That lesson was dope, but school at large is miserable right now. Harry's worried about Hagrid, particularly after Forenza's coded, the attempt is not working, warning. And the fifth years in general are starting to melt down. Quote, he sometimes felt that he was living for the hours he spent in the room of requirement, working hard but thoroughly enjoying himself at the same time, swelling with pride as he looked around at his fellow DA members and saw how far they had come. Seamus is there now, talking about his Harry yeah. Patronus.
1: Yeah, my Patronus, babe.
0: It's only hang. The group is on Patronus's highly advanced magic, as we've discussed. It's all going so well until Umbridge has found out about the DA. She's on her way. Here she comes. Harry tells everyone to run, and then Harry tries to escape, but he's wiped out. Mouthfully hit him with the trip jinx, and Umbridge comes to retrieve him,
1: looking overjoyed she takes him to the headmaster's office. Dumbledore's office is quite full at the moment. There's Dumbledore, there's McGonagall, there's Corn Fudge, Uh uh-oh, Kingsley is here, Dollish, whom Harry doesn't recognize, and the purse master general, Percy Weasley. Harry observes an indecent excitement in Umbridge's voice as she presents him to Fudge, who asks if Harry knows why he's here. He's about to say yes when Dumbledore's like, no, 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 you know. Dumbledore gives him the little bit of the, you know, that, Swipe at the neck movement. Mm-hmm. And Harry says no. So it's news to you, is it, said Fudge, his voice now thick with anger, Then an illegal student organization has been discovered within this school. Umbridge suggests getting their informant. Chose good friend Marietta the rat, who's hiding her face in her hands. We learn that Marietta's mother, who works in the Department of Magical Transportation, and whom Cho had previously alluded to forbidding her from doing anything to upset Umbridge, has been helping Umbridge monitor the Hogwarts fires. When Marietta lifts her head to speak, the whole room is like, God! (laughs) (sighs) She has purple pustules forming the word sneak (gasps) across her nose and cheeks. And then jinx Hermione put on the DA's sign-up parchment made her pay. Mal, you would say too severely. It's too much. No, I don't think so. At least... Okay. We're in a war here. It's too much.
0: People are dying. too much. You got to tell them, hey, look, if you rat, something's going to happen. You got to give them okay, that Okay,
1: I agree that that is the, that is the mistake. And then make sh- sure it's reversible. Like, this girl's carrying scars for the rest of her life. I don't know. Death is not reversible. <laughs> do you want to see the whole Dumbledore's army get shredded? Everybody, little kids get thrown in into Azkaban. Or do you want to have Marietta be lightly disfigured for a period of time that Maybe up to the rest of her life. (laughs) Umbridge speaks, revealing that Marietta told them everything, but then the heck started to kick in and then she kind of clammed up. Fudge questions Marietta, but she won't speak. And when he impatiently asks, can anybody fix this? (laughs) Umbridge is like, I can't figure it out. I've been working on it from the book, Harry felt a surge of pride in Hermione's jigsing ability. Umbridge resumes. Willie Wittershins, and we don't, we all love Willie Wittershins, overheard Harry and company at the Hogshead in October and reported it. Ah, that's how he got off on the regurgitating toilet charge. Mm -hmm. What an interesting insight into our justice (laughs) system, McGonagall shouts. Dumbledore, however, notes that such a thing was not yet illegal. The decree banning the student societies. Came after this is like on technicalities, but we'll accept Dumbledore now pulling out technicalities. Like, let me see the timestamp on that text (laughs) as Dumbledore asks if she has any evidence. The meeting took place after Harry hears Kingsley whisper and feels something brush past him. When Umbridge asks Mary to confirm the six months worth of meetings, Harry observes that her eyes look blank. She's like, no. Shouts to everyone else in this room also who can't recognize the signs of these fucking experienced wizards and witches.
0: How is Corn Fudge, like, fucking alive? <laughs> How does he dress fudge himself
1: fudge in the morning fudge. in that
0: lime bowler?
1: Dumbass. Umbridge grabs Marietta. She gets upset, and Dumbledore and Kingsley move forward. They're like, no, 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 no. No, no, no. He says, I cannot allow you to manhandle my students, Dolores. And for the first time, he looked angry, book says.
0: Umbridge, her hands burning, has one card left to play. The meeting tonight. She says we needed evidence and the room provided. This is one of the things about the room of requirement, by the way. Yeah. It doesn't just give you what you need. She reveals the sign-up sheet and Fudge reads the group's name aloud. Dumbledore's army. At which point, Dumbledore takes the paper from him. This is a great part. Quote, He gazed at the headings scribbled by Hermione months before and for a moment seemed unable to speak. Then he looked up, smiling. He's buying time, strategizing, yes, but he is also silenced by how moved he is. Dumbledore is deeply flawed, but he loves Hogwarts and its students. He loves Harry. Though his methods are often imperfect, he does want to keep them safe. This moment of realization that they were trying to keep him and everything he's built safe is overwhelming for him. The kind of reveal that forces him to assess which priority should take precedence. The desire to protect them through secrecy and chess play or the desire to let them lead the way? He speaks. Well, the game is up. Would you like a written confession from me, Cornelius, or will a statement before these witnesses suffice? Harry sees McGonagall and Kingsley exchange looks of fear. What's about to happen here? Dumbledore is going to sacrifice himself for Harry, as he will again later in the ultimate sense, and as Harry will one day for all of those whom he is trying to protect. Dumbledore has done all he could to operate within the confines of the hellscape that the Ministry and Voldemort have independently wrought, but now the cost of pretending to play their game is too high. He can't let them take Harry, period. He cannot. He must prevent that at all costs. Dumbledore's army, Cornelius. Not Potter's army. Dumbledore's army. Fudge gasps in horror. Another credit to Dumbledore here. He knows that he can play right into Fudge's fear. And what a moment for Fudge. He thinks that this is a victory but this group only sprang into existence because his paranoia and obstinance made it necessary and provided direct inspiration. His refusal to listen to sense and the voice inside that must surely be there, buried deep within, but must surely be there telling him what's reasonable, has put him in this position. Dumbledore says he organized the group, recruited the students. Meeting number one was set for tonight, and his comprehension dawns on delay here, by the way, for our guy, Harry shouts in protest. He can't let Dumbledore take this hit for him. Harry's programmed to take the hit for other people, not the other way around. Dumbledore implores Harry to be silent. Quote, I came here tonight expecting to expel Potter and instead, that's Fudge speaking, Dumbledore cuts him off. Instead, you had to arrest me. It's like losing a canut and finding a galleon, isn't it? Now, of course, Dumbledore is acting like this in part because the exact opposite is true. Far from a Knut, Harry is a gem beyond price, the key to defeating Voldemort.
1: Fudge gives the order to escort Dumbledore to Azkaban, and he's like... <laughs> <This is> amazing. <laughs> ah, said Dumbledore gently, yes, yes. I thought we might hit that little snag. Corn's like, what? There's like trained aurors in this room. Well, that you seem to be laboring under the delusion that I am going to. What is the phrase? Come quietly. I'm afraid I'm not going to come quietly at all, corny. I have absolutely no intention of being sent to Azkaban. I could break out. Of course. What a waste of time. And frankly, I can think of a whole host of things I would rather be doing. This is also where you kind of see why Dumbledore is like, yeah, they can't make me minister because I would turn into a fucking savage. He's just like, please come at me. Please try this shit with me. Oh, my God. Please try it right now. Corn fudge. Please. This is a notable moment in many respects, not only because it's just stupendous imperial flex from Dumbledore, but because for Dumbledore so long has tried to stake out his territory as headmaster of Hogwarts, while also trying to be as non-threatening towards Corn, whose job he was offered five times (laughs) as possible. And now that's gone. Dumbledore is just like, please come at me right now. All of you, try something. Anyone, please. When Dolish makes a move like, okay, it's me. I guess I'll do it first. Dumbledore is like, don't be silly, Dallish. Said Dumbledore kindly. I'm sure you were an excellent horror. <laughs> I seem to remember that you achieved outstanding in all your newts. But if you attempt to uh, bring me in by force, I will have to hurt you. Unbelievable. Again, no more time for show. No more time for talk and sensible conversation. Now it's like, motherfuckers, try me. I'm going to lay you all out. Fudge is like, so you're going to take us all on? Dumbledore, Merlin's beard? No, not unless you're foolish enough to force me to. Dumbledore's never actually been modest. There's a difference between like taciturn and modest. But this brash Dumbledore, who's like, I'm better than all of you, is new for us and Harry. And it's key. This is also really the first time that we're going to see Dumbledore do some real shit.
0: He's not worried about other people's peace and comfort anymore. When Dolish, poor sweet Dalish, makes his move, there's a massive silver streak and then this trembling in the room. Dumbledore hexes everyone who's an enemy, plus Kingsley, for cover, and then communicates as quickly as he can with Harry and McGonagall, telling them to act as though no time has passed. Corn and Dolores cannot know that they spoke. McGonagall asks if he's going to go to 12 Grimald Place, and Dumbledore says... I am not leaving to go into hiding. Fudge will soon wish he'd never dislodge me from Hogwarts, I promise you. Again, no more hiding. No more operating in the shadows. No more giving in to that part of the battle within. Dumbledore tells Harry urgently to study occlumency, and then as he touches Harry, pain sears across Harry's scar, and he again feels that snake-like desire to strike, a product of the turmoil within that he does not yet understand. Dumbledore says, timely fashion here, you will understand. And then he grasps Fox and they vanish. And when everyone stirs, Corn tells McGonagall that this right here, this is the end of Dumbledore. And she says, You think so, do you? Which is a great subtle flex. Corn has totally lost his hold. No one is pretending with him anymore. McGonagall's talking back to him. Even the portraits on the wall are flicking him off. And we are left with this iconic assessment. You know, minister, I disagree with Dumbledore on many counts, but you cannot deny he's got style.
1: This is like Dumbledore doing the step over on Tyron Lou, <laughs> Chapter 28, Snape's Worst Memory. The ministry's battle against Dumbledore is over in one way, but only just beginning with Dumbledore now on the run. Umbridge, per education decree number 28, is the new head of Hogwarts. What went down in Dumbledore's office is the toggle of the school. And it is widely understood that Harry and Marietta were the only students present. Dumbledore's open rebellion and flight is an inspiring example to the student body. It really is possible to quiet the doubts and fully fight. Wherever he goes, Harry is inundated with questions. What happened? What happened? What happened? Umbridge does have some supporters, though, and I'll give you zero guesses who they are. (laughs) Draco Malfoy, for one, is thrilled with Umbridge's ascendance. He's part of the charmingly named Inquisitorial Squad. My goodness. The branding is incredible. The what? That's a select group of students who are supportive of the Ministry of Magic handpicked by Professor Umbridge.
0: Terrible development. Really tough.
1: Graham Montague. Tough <laughs> look for my guy, Graham. I did not know his named
0: Graham until today. <laughs> Captain of the Slytherin Quidditch team is also on the squad, and he tried to have a go at Fred and George and Doc Gryffindor points. We say tried because, fatefully, the twins stuffed Montague into the vanishing cabinet, which Peeves and Nick's behest broke in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. But you'll get into trouble, Hermione said. Not until Montague reappears, and that could take weeks. I don't know where we sent him, said Fred Cooley. Great.
1: They just literally put a kid into <laughs> Again, limbo for an open-ended amount of time. <laughs> Fred and George do
0: not care who they <laughs> You're are. It's really tough with Fred <gasps> oh, and George. God, imagine if they'd gotten to go at Marietta. <laughs> Jesus. Graham, dear sweet Graham, will learn much about how the vanishing cabinet works in his time, lost in magical limbo, hearing the other end. Ah, there's a twin. There's a passage. Why does this matter? Because after his escape, Draco will get this information and then will use all of his sixth year to repair this vanishing cabinet to create a passage for the Death Eaters, whom, with Draco's guidance, will use the cabinet to invade Hogwarts with tragic results in Half-Blood Prince. Again, another example of how with JKR, every single detail, no matter how small, is important. Anyway, Fred says, (laughs) we've decided we don't care about getting into trouble anymore. Now, the twins have always been pranksters, with futures that, in their own immortal words, lay outside the world of academic achievement. But with Dumbledore fled, Umbridge and her fucking inquisitorial (laughs) squad out here at war, taking points, about to start interrogating the student body, the twins... They can be docked points, sure, but you know what they can't be docked? Fox. (laughs) They have no more left to give. Their mother's voice, their tiny bit of discipline that always stopped them just before they put any more than a toe over line, you know, stopped them just short of expulsion, in other words. That battle, that's over. Chaos has won. It is mayhem time. We reckon a bit of mayhem, said George, is exactly what our dear new head deserves, said Fred. They'd walk out right now, in fact. They didn't want to do their bit for Dumbledore first.
1: Filch is another one delighted with Umbridge's rise. He's been dreaming of a return to the ways of the bad old days whence misbehaving students could be disciplined by being hung by chains. <laughs> Co-opting Filch is smart. Filch
0: delivers Harry to Umbridge's office. The headmistress is being suspiciously cordial, asking Harry what he'd like to drink. He's like, what? You like an Arnold Palmer? It's half tea and lemonade. Fire whiskey, please. <laughs> To drink, Mr. Potter, she said, smiling still more widely. Tea? Coffee? Pumpkin juice? Uh, no, 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 I'm good. Umbridge gives Harry a cup of tea. One of the ground rules of war is to never drink anything that your enemy gives you. And helpfully, one of the cats in Umbridge's decorations has eyes that remind Harry of Moody. And he's like, what would Moody do if he knew (laughs) I were drinking from an enemy? Good. So then Harry only pretends to imbibe, keeping his lips shut tight against the liquid. And whatever it contains, we will later find out. That umber just trying to slip Harry Veritas serum. After literal torture, what's some light interrogation? But the potion that Snape gave her is a fake. Uh She doesn't know that, though. And Harry, at her insistence, continues to mime drinking.
1: I love that she doesn't notice the tea (laughs) slipping down the sides (laughs) of his mouth and into his robes.
0: She launches into her interrogation. Good, she whispered. Very good. Now then. And then she leans forward. Where is Albus Dumbledore? No idea, said Harry promptly. Drink up, drink up. You're not drinking it. Drink it, but finish that. (laughs) Now, Mr. Potter, let us not play childish games. I know that you know where he has gone. Actually, Harry doesn't, which is helpful. You think he tells me shit? Are you kidding? (laughs) Homie literally hasn't looked at me in a (laughs) year. Give me a fucking (laughs) break, let me tell (laughs) you. When this line of questioning proves to be a dead end, she shifts. Very concerningly asking about Sirius Black. No idea. Umbridge tells Harry that she knows he's been in contact with Black since it was she who very nearly apprehended him when he appeared in the fire in the Gryffindor common room. Still, Harry refuses to play ball. And then a loud boom, boom, series boom, boom, of booms interrupts.
1: The twins promise you mayhem and are you not entertained? <laughs> are you not entertained? <laughs> All throughout the castle That promise mayhem is spreading in the form of fire-breathing dragons and spinning wheels of sparklers and rockets trailing tails of stars. Enchanted fireworks, courtesy of Weasley's Wizard Weezes. Anti-magic countermeasures, of course, come standard with these magical fireworks. When Umbridge tries a stunning spell to stop one of the fiery displays, it explodes with, quote, such force that it blasted a hole in a painting of a soppy-looking witch in the middle of a meadow. Don't stun them, Filch. <laughs> Umbridge screams, ma'am, Filch is a squib, so really don't even worry about it. Have you ever, literally, ever seen him with a wand? Never. It's like quite right, right, you are. <laughs> yes. The teaching staff, in an act of defiance, take the opportunity to run Umbridge ragged, summoning her to their classrooms, each in turn to ask for help so they don't overstep their authority. <laughs> that night, with stray fireworks still popping off here and there, Harry again dreams of the hallway, the door to the Department of Mysteries. The door opens, and then for the first time, the door off the circular room does too, and then the door at the end of the room, filled with clicking sounds. The dark room he's in is filled with shelves, each containing many glass orbs from the book. There was something in this room he wanted very, very much. Something he wanted, or somebody else wanted. When fireworks and shouts wake him, Harry's disappointed Mm -hmm. from the book. He felt as though a wonderful treat had been snatched from him at the very last moment. The only feeling that matches that desire, the sickness in his stomach, when he remembers he has occlumency the next night. Harry heads to his next occlumency practice, but dreads it.
0: Harry's worried. Snape will know he hasn't been practicing. What will his intrusions reveal this time? But it's moot. The session's broken up before it even begins by the sudden intrusion of Draco Malfoy. Little Death Eater Jr., (laughs) <laughs> Needs the professor's help dislodging Graham Montague Grammy! from a toilet,
1: which Jason says is where he belongs. <laughs> I so feel his, bad he's his, owl, his owl should deliver all his mail just to a toilet.
0: <laughs> and we wonder why the houses can't unite. Yeah. Please make yourself at home, Graham. Snape covers by telling Draco that Harry's there for remedial potions. And though Harry's glad for any excuse to skip this night's lesson by some more time, it feels like fucking shit to know that Draco is going to spread that around the entire school, which he surely will. When they leave, Harry, you know, this has happened before, just a dancing light, a little glimpse of something, something. What's that? Oh boy. Okay, well, before each training session, Snape removes memories, storing them in the pensive. What is in there? that he doesn't want Harry to see. Particularly potent thought for Harry after a lesson in which he did break through Snape's defenses and catch a glimpse of his memories. The Potion Master has been rifling through Harry's mind, looking at Harry's most intimate memories and commenting on them. It's good for the guess. Harry can't help himself. Again, the battle within. He knows that this is insane, but he's so recklessly Curious. He's got to find out. you got to lock your
1: pensive when you leave the room. That's also like just 101. Like, what are we doing?
0: Very tough look for our guy, Severus. And Harry needs to find some sort of justification, right, always for his actions. And he finds it not in any sort of logical thought here, but in his anger with Cho and Malfoy and all the petty burdens of everyday teenage life. Quote, a reckless daring seized him. Harry should be so much smarter than this by now, but he isn't. Just like Sirius, he always thinks he can get away with it. His impulsiveness is one of his strengths, but also the source of his hubris.
1: Harry finds himself in the great hall. The room is filled with many small tables. He locates the teenage snake, stringy, pallid, quote, like a plant kept in the dark. He's taking his defense against the dark arts owl, Professor Flitwick presiding. Harry looks around and sees himself? No, that's 15-year-old James Potter, the spitting image of Harry, minus the eyes, which we know all about from the book. It was as though he was looking at himself, but with deliberate mistakes. I love that line so much. James Potter, we discover, messed up his hair on purpose. Uh It's a small detail, but one that will comport nicely with the looming reveal that James is a fucking douchebag. (laughs) The rest of the marauders are there, too. Young and extremely handsome, serious Black, unaware of the, f- the fuck-me eyes he's getting yeah. from all around the room. Yep. And especially Juan, looking Remus Lupin and a pre-death era Peter Pettigrew. Mm. James is doodling L.E. on his paper. <laughs> the test ends. Harry follows his father and his pals outside down the lawn near the lake as they debrief on exam results. One, He's sitting in my chair. Two, he's wearing my clothes. Three, his name's Remus Lupin. This is Remus talking about one of the questions that was like, can you identify a werewolf? And then is pet- like, like, I had a hard time with that one. You're a fucking idiot. <laughs> it's a conversation Harry, Ron, and Hermione might have had and have had countless times. More proof that his father was real. Chance for Harry to see him in a way that he never has before. Snape is there too, on the periphery, looking over his owl. Of course, it's his memory. James and Sirius both boast with ease that they're sure they got outstandings on the Mm -hmm. test. They're used to being good. James is also toying around with a snitch, showing Mm -hmm. off for his friends and whoever else is watching, drinking up their awe and attention. They settle by the same beech tree that Harry and his friends lounge under. More bridges, more connections. Then James sees Snape. This will liven you up, Padfoot, said James quietly. (laughs) Sirius has been bored. The regular achievements aren't enough for him and James. yes, Look who it is, Sirius's head turned he had become very still like a dog that has scented a rabbit. Excellent, he said softly, Snivellus. James and Sirius walk over to Snape. All right, Snivellus, James said loudly. And you can tell by what follows that this happens all the time because Snape immediately goes for his wand. Immediately. He's not even waiting to be like, what do you want? Right. This is a regular occurrence. But James disarms him with Expelliarmus. Harry's eventual girlfriend. (laughs) Then Sirius hits him with impedimenta. Empty-handed and unable to move, now Snape is powerless to stop what is coming. How'd the exam go, snivelly? said James. I was watching him. His nose was touching the parchment, said Sirius viciously. There'll be great grease marks all over it. They won't be able to read a word. And when Snape talks back, James casts Scourgify, filling Severus's mouth with soap. This is shameful bullying, downright abuse. Yes. All of a sudden, leave him alone. It is Lily Evans, Harry's mother. James's first instinct is to mess up his hair.
0: What's he done to you, Lily asks. Well, said James, appearing to deliberate the point, it's more the fact that he exists. It's just fucking nasty. you know what I mean, foul. It really is just mean. It's terrible. They're fucking with Snape just because they can. And we have to at least pause to consider... Is there any difference here, really, between what James and Sirius are doing and what Draco does to Harry? Or, in the interest of fairness here, what adult Snape does when he bullies his students? Lily pushes on, calling James arrogant, calling him a bully, looking at him with great dislike. Think about what this is like for Harry. He never got to consciously experience life with his parents, with them together, in love. He's heard countless stories. He has photos. Even though it's a horrifying thing, he hears their voices in his head when the dementors get near. He's seen them in the mirror, of said. He saw their echoes in the graveyard. But this is his first exposure to them in front of his face fully in the past, a chance to just observe them in the course of their everyday lives, not a moment of tragedy, not in their death. And in that moment, what does he see? It seems like Lily. Hates James. One of the only certainties that Harry has ever carried in his entire life is that his parents loved each other and that they loved him and that their love was enough to save him. How can he reconcile what he's currently seeing with that belief? What's more, Snape, as you'll recall, has always told Harry that his father was arrogant. And Harry dismissed it as a petty insult, Snape just trying to goad him. But it appears that the potions master was right. When Lily shouts for James to leave Snape alone, Harry's dad gets decidedly creepy. I will if you go out with me, Evan, said James quickly. Go on. Go out with me. And I'll never lay a wand on old Snivelly again. It's not great. I'm not a good look good. here.
1: Go out with me or I will torture this boy. i not a good look here.
0: And Lily says, I wouldn't go out with you if it was a choice between you and the giant squid. Snape meanwhile, goes for his wand, and he manages to get off a curse, slicing James's face. It's not enough to stop the assault. James reacts, hanging Snape upside down using what we recognize as levy corpus, exposing Snape's milky white legs and filthy underwear. And we will learn in Half-Blood Prince, the spells used in this sequence are of Snape's own invention. The humiliation of what's happening to him here is magnified not only by just the basic occurrence, but by the shame of seeing his nemesis use his own creations, his own inventions against him. And the gathered crowd laughs. James drops him, and then Sirius freezes him with Petrificus Totalus. This is a relentless assault. Lily again asks for James to release Snape, to leave him alone. Whether because she's convinced him or because James's inner bully is finally satiated, James does. Says, there you go. And as Snape struggled to his feet again, James says, "You're lucky Evans was here, Snivellus. And then Snape replies, I don't need help from filthy little mudbloods like her. We will learn in The Prince's Tale in Deathly Hallows that this moment is one of the great regrets of Snape's life. Lily isn't defending Snape just because she's a nice person, though she is. They're friends, best friends. And in his shame and misery, being humiliated not only in front of her, but by the boy he loathed who would wind up Taking her away from him, he succumbed to his worst instincts, the budding Death Eater within. Lily always saw the best in Snape, and once he lost her, he lost the best of himself too, going over to the dark side becoming a Death Eater. Only her death, which he unknowingly played a role in causing, brought him back to the light, leading to a lifelong commitment to avenging her and protecting her progeny, even though the boy is a living, breathing embodiment of Snape's bitter regret losing Lily to James. Here, though, we know none of this. Apologize to Evans, James roared at Snape, his wand pointed threateningly at him. I don't want you to make him apologize, Lily shouted, rounding on James. You're as bad as he is.
1: Lily, disgusted, walks away, and Harry watches as James attacks Snape again. He hears James say, who wants to see me take off Snivelly's pants? Remember, there's a huge crowd here. All the students gathered around. Then Harry feels a hand grip his arm and pull him out of the memory. It's Snape having fun. Harry's terrified. Snape's grip on him, vice-like. Amusing man, your father, wasn't he? said Snape, shaking Harry so hard that his glasses slipped down his nose, his face white, his teeth bared. Snape sends Harry away, telling him forcefully, do not tell anyone what you saw. Don't worry. What Harry saw will take some time, years even, to fully digest. It's a contradiction to everything he's believed, to everything that's guided him to this point, particularly since entering the wizarding world, that his parents were both good and kind and brave. And they were, but they were also three-dimensional people. It's not that simple that they were in love, and they were, but not. Always not from the start. And that Snape was driven by misguided prejudice. And he was, though, also by justified pain. Harry has experienced some of that pain he just witnessed in the memory, but from the other side, from Snape feeling like an outcast, feeling like he doesn't belong, feeling like the plaything for some hot shot bully. Being compared to James has always been an incredible source of pride for him. I fly just as well mm-hmm. as he did. They say I'm like him. He was great. But what if he was not great? Right. And clearly he seems like a dick, or at least what if it was more complicated than that? And what if the source of much of that, Sirius, was also kind of a dick? If the bridge that's always been an anchor for Harry is corrupted, then what compass does he have from the book? What was making Harry feel so horrified and unhappy was not being shouted at or having jars thrown at him. It was that he knew how it felt to be humiliated in the middle of a circle of onlookers, knew exactly how Snape had felt as his father had taunted him, and that judging from what he had just seen, his father had been every bit as arrogant as Snape had always told him. Incredible chapter. Yeah. Mal, I could manure my garden with the contents of that rag. But I'm looking to do some planting, so please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about Wizarding Publications.
0: Ah, the Wizarding World's fourth estate! Hard as she is, with journalism the color of Hufflepuff's quidditch robes, Rita Skeeter provides a number of useful news nuggets in this section of Order of the Phoenix. First, she tells Hermione that the Daily Prophet, quote, exists to sell itself, you silly little girl. Clicks, baby! (laughs) Give me that SEO. Second, she notes the lack of real competition for wizarding news in Britain. And third, she remarks that Luna's father probably publishes, quote, some stupid little village newsletter when she learns that he's a journalist. All three items contain clues about how the Wizarding World's fourth estate operates. First, the profit. Rita's not wrong about its goal. As J.K. Rowling writes on Pottermore, she named the paper because of the similar sounds of profit, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, and profit, P-R-O-F-I-T, which she says is a clue to the paper's, quote, overriding motivation. This is the only large circulation newspaper in Wizarding Britain and is delivered daily by Al to nearly every magical household in the country. Like muggle newspapers, it is split by section, containing a mix of hard news, quidditch results, business news, and entertainment information. Generally, this variety of information pleases the prophet's readership. As Rolling notes, quote, as a small outsider and occasionally beleaguered community, wizards are, by and large, interested in the same kind of stories. Except some of them, you know, are death eaters. But that acceptance masks a number of issues with the profit, mainly its sensationalism and lack of real independence from the ministry. The broader problem in the Wizarding Press is an absence of competition, which breeds complacency. While Rita's comments suggest the existence of small gazette-style publications for individual communities, none of these are ever mentioned by name and therefore clearly aren't a big enough deal to factor into the profit's calculations. Even the Quibbler, an alternative and outlandish magazine, is relatively small and not well known before the Potter Exposé, and other large circulation publications don't cover hard news, which weekly isn't a source of information on the ministry, but a gossip rag filled with celebrity profiles. It also awards a most charming smile honor, which Gilderoy Lockhart won five consecutive times, as he'll tell literally anyone who asks and also those who don't. More common than newspapers are trade publications like *Which Broomstick*, which acts much as car magazines do in Muggle societies, with reviews and test rides and advertisements for all matter of broom. There are also what appear to be subject-specific trade publications or scholarly journals, what Elpheus Dogbreath Doge calls "learned publications" in his obituary for Dumbledore and Hallows, such as *Challenges and Charming*, *The Practical Potioneer*, and *Transfiguration Today*. Transfiguration Today, incidentally, also gives out a Most Promising Newcomer Award, which our very own Minerva Magalia McGonagall won as a teenager. I assume that was Most Promising Newcoming Gambler? Yeah, The politically slanted press exists, or at least used to exist, in Britain also. In Dumbledore's commentary on The Wizard and the Hopping Pot in The Tales of Beetle the Barb, he mentions an old periodical called Warlock at War, which aimed to stoke anti-Muggle resentment. Dumbledore mentions an editorial from editor Brutus Malfoy, who wrote in 1675 that, quote, Any wizard who shows fondness for the society of muggles is of low intelligence. Nothing is sure a sign of weak magic than a weakness for non-magical company. Clearly, the Malfoy apple doesn't fall far from the tree here. Very tough hang. Across the pond, the newspaper selection is a bit more diverse, as we know of at least two competing papers for magical folk in the U.S. At the beginning of the first Fantastic Beasts film, we see a number of newspapers fly on screen, including the New York Ghost and a rival paper called The Wizard's Voice. That movie also shows a monthly magazine called The Witch's Friend, whose slogan was For All American Witches. There is one bit of good news, for the Wizarding Press at least, and that's a strong future. The Wizarding World's reluctance to adopt muggle innovations means that a turn to the internet is unlikely and a (laughs) newsprint-based press will continue to thrive. As Rowling writes on Pottermore, quote, if muggle newspapers had moving photographs, their circulation might be similarly buoyant. Indeed, what are the prophets' photos, if not a magical means of making Uh gifts?" Jason? Yeah. Mars, bringer of podcasts, shines brightly above us, Mm. suggesting that the fight must break out again soon. So before then, let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Order of the Phoenix chapters 24 through 28, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. You go first.
1: Number one, the Daily Prophet article about the Azkaban breakout says that Fudge has informed the Muggle prime minister which subtly lays the groundwork for the incredible first chapter of Half-Blood Prince when we see Fudgy and then Scrimgeour meeting with the muggle boss to discuss the atrocities riddling the wizarding world. It's one of the great cold opens in recent memory. Can't wait to talk about it.
0: Number two. We discussed Harry, Sirius, and the mirror at length above, but there's one more crucial thing to note here. When Harry looks into the shard of his mirror in Hallows, he'll see a blue eye that he thinks is Dumbledore's. And over the course of the book, after the mirror plays a pivotal role in the rescue from Malfoy Manor, we will learn that Harry's really seeing Aberforth Dumbledore, who bought the other mirror, Sirius's, off of dung after Albus told him what it was and used it to try to keep an eye on Harry. A really small but nice bit of foreshadowing, shortly after Harry pockets the mirror here in order and they leave headquarters, the night bus drives through Hogsmeade, at which point Harry looks at the Hogshead.
1: Number three, when Hermione's getting dunked on for not understanding the life-altering importance of quidditch, she says, At least my happiness doesn't depend on Ron's goalkeeping ability. Well, until keeper tryouts in Prince, when she confunds Cormac to ensure that her beloved Ronnie gets the job. Truly shocking stuff from Hermione. Really not great. But when she rides, she
0: rides. She rides hard. (laughs) Number four. As outlined above, when Sirius asks Snape during their tiff at Grimald Place if he's calling him a coward, Snape says, why, yes, I suppose I am. This moment is particularly notable given what we witness in Half-Blood Prince when we see what a massive trigger word, coward, is for Snape on the heels of the courage required to follow through on his agreement with Dumbledore to kill the only man who ever fully believed in his redemption. Don't screamed Snape and his face was suddenly demented inhuman, as though he was in as much pain as the yelping, howling dog stuck in the burning house behind them. Call me coward.
1: <sighs> Number five. We already discussed the significance of what Malfoy learns about the vanishing cabaret from our guy. Fucking Graham. (laughs) Graham. Here are a couple other bits of Malfoy foreshadowing. Number one, Harry finds him longing to hit Malfoy with a, quote, good curse. Well, in one more year, you'll be slicing him open with sectum sempra. Number two, we learn here in Order that Trelawney is wandering the corridors smelling of cooking sherry. In Prince, Harry comes across Trelawney after a failed attempt to hide her sherry bottles in the room of requirement. And her tale leads Harry to deduce that Malfoy has achieved his goal, a conversation that also crucially... Lisa Trelawney revealing to Harry that Snape was the one who interrupted her interview with Dumbley all those years ago, allowing Harry to piece together that Snape is the one who told Voldemort about the prophecy. Man, cooking, Sherry. Imagine. Come on, we can do better. What are they paying you over here?
0: Number six, Dumbledore's I have absolutely no intention of being sent to Azkaban. I could break out, of course, but what a waste of time line is, as outlined above. Such an iconic flex that it's almost hard to focus on any other aspect of it, but it is worth noting that this is yet another connection between Dumbledore and his boyhood love, Geller Grindelwald. We know from the trailers for Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, and from the Lego set called Grindelwald's yes. Escape. Thank you to our friends at Lego. <laughs> that Grindelwald will break out of MACUSA Spoiler! custody. <laughs> Spoiler in the merch shop. Just one more ability that these two immensely gifted wizards have in common. Not everybody could break out, but these two can. Notably, though, while Dumbledore bests Grindelwald in their famous duel, he does not kill him. What happens instead? Glad you asked. Grindelwald winds up imprisoned in Nurmengard, the prison that he built to house his enemies, and the prison in which he will ultimately be killed by Voldemort after decades of entombment from which he was unable to escape.
1: Number seven. Guys, it was really nuts that Lupin and Tox took Harry and company back to school on the night bus. Number one, it's public fucking transportation. And everybody on the bus was like, oh, it's Harry Potter. Everyone. Lupin summoned the bus basically a block away from headquarters. (laughs) And they clearly didn't factor in the... Presence of budding Death Eater Stan Shunpike. <laughs> By the way, shouts to Madame Marsh, who is also violently ill on the bus in Azkaban and yet continues to ride it here for reasons unknown. Why couldn't they just take the flu network? Yes, it's being watched, but they can't track it. back to Grimald. You can't go on public transit. It's really insane that they did that.
0: Like, they're so afraid of Voldemort tracking Harry that they have an advance guard take him from Privet
1: Drive, a place we know Voldemort know. can't get him. All right, guys, overlapping patterns of flight to throw off the Death Eaters. If Disillusionment one, charm. If one of us dies, just keep going. Do not stop. How am I getting back to school? Are you going to take the bus? Do you have We're a bus gonna, ticket? I, I just walk two blocks over and, you have and call the bus. have I mean, I guess Mr. Weasley took him on the tube. Anyway. Mal, you're worse than Ron. Well, no, you're not. <sighs> and good God. thing, because every episode, we're going to honor the person, or I do, who captivated us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup too. <music> Hermione. She's yes. dominating this book.
0: Dominating! Crushing it. Listen, setting up the Rita Quibbler article is yes. huge. Now, granted, she is holding all the cards with Rita because she is still leveraging the fact that she can out her for being an unregistered animagus. But hey, put that to good use, right?
1: Yeah. This is huge. Get Harry's story out there. Incredible sequence in which Hermione explains why you shouldn't talk about hanging out with another girl to the girl you're trying to date. You should have told her differently. Yes, you dummy. And it might have been a good idea to mention how ugly you think I am, too. Well, that's not—we don't need to go that far. But I don't think you're ugly, said Harry bemused. Harry, you're worse than Ron. Well, no, you're not. So advanced is Hermione's romantic advice that Ron actually tells her she should write a book. That's like knowing three numbers and fucking Arthur Weasley being amazed. It's not that big a deal. Would Fred and George express puzzlement? Over how Ginny got so good at Quidditch, Hermione's like, she's been stealing your brooms all her life. (laughs) It's
0: amazing. What
1: are you talking about, you idiots?
0: That moment is actually like a big deal because it just shows how astute she is. She knows so much about all these people and their relationships. It's amazing. Also, she gets shit about it from Harry, but she rightly notes that Quidditch is prohibiting house unity. That is an important point to be making, and
1: Mm -hmm. she makes it. She even inadvertently helps. Perfect the skiving snack boxes. The yes. twins say they figured out how to cure the boils once <laughs> Lee put them onto Mertlap essence. Well, how did they find out about Mertlap essence? Harry told Lee about the liquid because, of course, Harry knew about it because Hermione. Gave it to him to help with his hand.
0: I also like all the moments in this stretch where Hermione's like, "That's pretty good magic from Fred and George." Like, I know she's impressive, but she's like,
1: "Yeah, she's like, wow, pretty good." Those fireworks are good. The invisibility field extending from the headless hat—that's pretty good. I got it. Also, good thing to pay attention to here throughout this book. All of Harry's big mistakes happen when he does the thing that Hermione is like, "Don't do that."
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) As we will see in the rest of the way here. Also. You know, she kind of finally pieces together together all of it about Bode and Sturgis and what happened. She's paying attention so specifically to all the details that she is really piecing this together in a way that no one else is. Now, I will note two demerits here. I feel compelled. We've already talked about the sneak thing time and time again, so we won't linger on that. Though, this is a credit to Hermione. The magic is so good that the ministry officials can't reverse it. It's great. Here's another demerit. I don't like that she says of Ferenz,
1: I've never really liked horses.
0: It's an insult. That doesn't sound like the way Hermione would talk. That's like
1: an umbrage line. Yeah. I mean, that's like when, uh, who was it that said, uh, oh, was Hagrid training you like a herd? Tough look for Dean. Dean.
0: (laughs) Did Hagrid breed you? Tough look for for our guy, Dean
1: Thomas.
0: (sighs) 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 Finally, one upshot of Hermione's sneak magic. Last straw for Harry and Cho. Thank you, Hermione, for finally ending this failed, doomed romance. All right, friends, we watch the feeds for the great tides of evil or change mm. that are sometimes marked there. So, too, do Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, though they're humans and are therefore blinkered and fettered by the limitations yes. of their kind. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you will join us again tomorrow. When we will be discussing Order Chapters 29 through 33. My goodness. Until then, lie back upon the floor and observe the heavens. Here is written for those who can see the fortune of this podcast.
1: So are you going to deny that you've been running a secret student defense organization under the nose of the ministry for all these months? Bring in the witness, Marietta, come in. Now, Harry Potter, your story is about to fall apart now. Marietta, it's okay dear, to bring your hands. Oh my. Jesus! <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> ah! Dolores! <laughs> Holy shit. That's. Uh, Marietta, it's okay. It's okay. It's. Uh- It's not that bad. From a certain angle, you can barely see the (laughs) puzzles. Wow.